Connects Talks connects professionals in the life science, medical device, and food industries with useful content like webinars, job openings, articles, and virtual meetings to help you succeed in your career. This life science-focused podcast brings together some of our editorial staff to share insights into the latest B2B industry news to keep you up to date. This week on the show, we are discussing FDA approval for the RNAi therapeutic for a rare genetic protein disorder and the first systemic treatment for alopecia areata. Enjoy the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the X Talks Life Science Podcast. I'm Aisha Rashid, Senior Life Science Journalist at xtalks.com. And this week, I'm joined by Sydney Perlmutter and Vera Kovacevic. Thanks for coming today. I'd like to start off with a story about Eli Lilly's Alimiant and how it's won FDA approval as the very first whole body or systemic treatment for alopecia areata. Now, alopecia has been in the news recently, of course, uh, because of the Oscars and the Will Smith incident. Um, but however, Eli Lilly's Illumiant um, is now the first treatment for it as a systemic treatment. And the FDA granted approval to the drug last week. So Illumiant is also known as baricitinib, and it's available in three different doses four, two, and one milligrams, and they are taken once daily. The FDA approved the drug for the treatment of adults with this rare hair loss condition. So alopecia areata is commonly just known as alopecia in most cases, and it affects more than 300,000 individuals in the U.S. every year. As well, about 147 million people worldwide have or will have alopecia, and approximately 700,000 to 900,000 are currently suffering from the severe form of the disease. Alopecia areata specifically is an autoimmune condition in which the body attacks its own hair follicles, causing hair loss. Now, treatments for alopecia areata have been limited and largely cosmetic, such as the use of wigs and false eyelashes or corticosteroid injections into the scalp. Therefore, the Illumiant approval is a big win as it helps fulfill a significant unmet need in the area. Illumiant's FDA approval for alopecia areata was based on trial data that showed patients who had at least 50% scalp hair loss for more than six months achieved at least 80% scalp hair coverage by week 36 of treatment. So Illumiant is a Janus kinase or JAK inhibitor, and it was first discovered by the company Insight and then licensed to Eli Lilly. The way it functions is that it blocks the activity of JAK1 and JAK2, which are uh, two types of Janus kinases, uh, proteins, and the drug interferes with the JAKSTAT signaling pathway to uh, inhibit the production of inflammatory cytokines through the modulation of gene expression. And those cytokines are involved in the pathogenesis of uh, alopecia and other inflammatory conditions as well. So Illumiant was first approved for the treatment of rheumatoid arthritis in 2018, and it later received authorization as a COVID-19 treatment as well for certain hospitalized cases. For rheumatoid arthritis, it is indicated for the treatment of adults with moderate to severe forms of the disease who have had an inadequate response to one or more tumor necrosis factor or TNF blockers. 
Now, the approval for alopecia areata was based on findings from two double-blind placebo-controlled trials. Um, and these trials make up part of the largest phase three alopecia areata clinical trial program um, completed to date, which is evaluating the efficacy and safety of Illumiant. The medication was assessed in 1,200 adult patients with severe alopecia areata. Results from the trials show that across the studies at 36 weeks, 17 to 22% of patients that took a two milligram dose of Illumiant a day achieved 80% or more skull pair coverage compared to three to 5% that received placebo. In addition to that, 11 to 13% of patients who took two milligrams of Illumiant a day and 24 to 26% of patients that took four milligrams per day experienced 90% or more hair coverage compared to one to 4% of patients that received placebo. Individuals can develop alopecia at any age, but most develop it during childhood or teenage years. Wanted to get your insights and thoughts about this new approval. And, you know, although unfortunate, you know, that we've seen incidents like the Will Smith incident, but do you think sort of that does in the end, you know, bring awareness, not that that was um, sorry, an intentional incident or anything like that, as we've learned, but um, you know, celebrities backing or bringing awareness to different diseases. Do you think that's uh, a good way to sort of highlight uh, rare diseases like this um, and others? Yeah, I think lots of people learn about a rare disease or let's say a very uncommon disease if like a celebrity person has it and they openly talk about it, um, which I think some people choose to do, some people may not. Um, but yeah, I think that's how a lot of people hear about rare diseases. Mm -hmm. um, but with alopecia, I was just wondering, because it's an autoimmune disease and then it mm -hmm. attacks the hair follicles, I guess there's no other symptoms besides like um, bald patches. Yeah, that's the classic symptom where you have clumps of hair uh, loss so and then you develop very prominent bald patches. Um, but I think other than that, um, yeah, I think in some cases your fingernails can also be, be affected. I think they can become more brittle. Um, but really the, the main symptom is that hair loss. Yeah. So there's not any pain or any other, again, specific symptoms that are associated with the condition. I think a good thing about, um, you know, celebrities sort of speaking uh, about a rare disease, not specifically in this case, but mm -hmm. when is more intentional is that um, people who believe that they may be experiencing symptoms of this illness can actually get a bit of validation, um, perhaps, and give some some concrete evidence to a doctor, um, of course, with, with other research as well to support it. But I think it really just like brings light to, um, you know, some symptoms that people may be experiencing, and then they can sort of, it's sort of a little bit being validated. Um, now, of course, you would want to get further validation from a doctor or more than one. But yeah, I think it's it's a really good way to sort of highlight rare diseases. And I don't even, I don't even know, correct me if I'm wrong, if alopecia is that rare. 
Um, you know, it's interesting because you know, we do call a lot of these rare diseases rare, but they're not as rare as we think. I mean, yeah. uh, 300,000 people in the U S that's a pretty, I mean, it's not huge, but it's a, it's a big number, you know? So it's, uh, oh, a lot more people are suffering from, uh, alopecia than we do think. Yeah. And another thing um, that you brought up is that this medication um, has also been used in the past mm -hmm. to treat um, arthritis and even yeah. COVID in certain circumstances. And I think that's, um, at least from my observation, is a very common um, phenomenon is yeah. that medications that have been or dual purpose or even dual. more than dual purpose yeah. medications. Um, and I find it interesting how, you know, the research comes about that, oh, this can treat one thing, but it can also treat this thing. So there must be a lot of, you know, experimentation going on to figure these things out. Absolutely. And so if this, um, this idea or this uh, practice is called drug repurposing. So basically you have an existing drug and, you know, people will trial it for other indications. And that's very common, especially if you're talking about, um, you know, if, if you have the same sort of molecular pathophysiological mechanisms at play. So both rheumatoid arthritis and things like alopecia are autoimmune diseases. And so this specific drug targets a specific pathway that is common to both diseases. So the Jack kinase, so it's a Jack kinase inhibitor in this case. And so if you can, if you have a drug um, or if you have some molecular pathways or cellular pathways that are deregulated and they're common between different diseases, then you can come in with that same drug. So that's the idea there. And definitely it's so great. I mean, that's what was happening with COVID initially, you, you know, researchers that uh, were just trying to throw any and all drugs at it. It's kind of like, well, what, what do we have in our arsenal already? Because developing a new drug, as we all know, it takes years and years. Um, and so that's why this is definitely an ideal way that if you already have drugs available um, and just trial them for new indications, if it makes sense, of course, within reason. Okay, now moving on to our next story. This is another FDA drug approval and keeping with the theme of novel therapies and targeted molecular therapies. So Mvutra or Vutriceran has been approved by the FDA for the treatment of polyneuropathy of hereditary transthyretin mediated or ATTR amyloidosis in adults. Now hereditary ATTR amyloidosis is a rare, rapidly progressive condition that causes serious nerve damage, and this affects approximately 50,000 people worldwide. The disease is characterized by debilitating polyneuropathy manifestations and cardiomyopathy in a small number of cases as well. And the condition has very limited treatment options, and of course, as such, this drug approval is major because again, it fulfills a significant unmet need. So Mbutra is administered via subcutaneous injection four times a year or once every three months or quarterly. So Mbutra's FDA approval was based on positive data from a global randomized open label multicenter trial called Helios A. And it was, it's a phase three study and the data was data from the study for a period of nine months was analyzed um, and assessed. And results of the study show that uh, Mbutra significantly improved the signs and symptoms of polyneuropathy. Um, and 50% of patients achieved a cease or reversal of their disease manifestations. Now, this is not Alan 
first RNAi therapeutic for this specific indication. Onpatro was first licensed and approved, was actually the first licensed and approved RNAi therapeutic for ATTR polyneuropathy, and that was developed by uh, the same company. However, unlike Onpatro, which is given intravenously once every three weeks, um, the benefit of Mvutra is that it can be administered less frequently and under the skin just once every three months. Um, and this is because alanilum really um, designed this drug to have a high metabolic stability and increased potency. And they were able to do that by leveraging um, their novel technology platform to develop and design this new drug. So in the Helios A study, Mvutra was found to help ATTR polyneuropathy patients achieve an average improvement of 2.2 points on a modified neuropathy impairment score after nine months, compared to a worsening of an average of 17.7 points in an external placebo group. Overall, half of the patients had some level of improvement. And in the same study, those who received Onpatro scored an improvement of 1.4 points. Now, there are two types of this rare protein disorder, ATTR. So the hereditary form has an autosomal dominant pattern of inheritance, and it's caused by point mutations in the transthyrotin or TTR gene, which codes for the transthyrotin transport protein found in the plasma and cerebrospinal fluid. TTR protein is made in the liver, and it's involved in carrying the thyroid hormone thyroxin, or T4, as well as retinol or vitamin A to the liver. So defects in the TTR protein transporter leads to a buildup of amyloid protein, and hence uh, causing amyloidosis in tissues and organs. And this occurs mainly in the nerves in the peripheral nervous system. And so the buildup of amyloid protein in the nerves leads to loss of sensation in the extremities, uh, peripheral neuropathy, as well as the autonomic nervous system, uh, which can also be affected. And that of course has serious implica implications for organ function. Some of the signs and symptoms of hereditary ATTR include swelling of the ankles and legs, major fatigue and weakness, shortness of breath with minimal exertion, um, numbness, tingling, or pain in the hands or feet, as well as wrist pain um, and being more prone to carpal tunnel syndrome. Now, there's another form of ATTR, which um, has manifestations including cardiomyopathy. So the cardiac form of ATTR can, have an, can present with an abnormal heartbeat or arrhythmia, um, an enlarged heart, or orthostatic hypertension. And these abnormalities can lead to progressive heart failure and death. Now, going back to Mvutra, Mvutra is an RNAi therapeutic that targets mutant and wild type transthyrotin or TTR messenger RNA. So it targets uh, both the wild type and, and the mutated form or the mRNA of the mutated form of this um, the mRNA that codes for the protein. So alanim, as I mentioned, designed um, Mvutra to have increased potency and a high metabolic stability using its proprietary enhanced stabilization chemistry or ESC Galnac conjugate delivery platform. And uh, so this drug, this allows the drug to be injected just once every three months because of its high metabolic stability.
So um, going back to the uh, to ATTR cardiomyopathy, uh, that affects 200,000 to 300,000 people globally, but its prevalence is likely to be higher, according to experts, because it is underdiagnosed. And therefore, more people are likely affected with ATTR cardiomyopathy than hereditary ATTR. And overall, that is the case um, with the underdiagnosis as well. Now, Alnilum is currently conducting a Helios B study to evaluate Mvutra for ATTR cardiomyopathy, and um, it's expected that patient survival data will be available in 2024 from that trial. Um, now, at the same time, uh, investors are also looking at the company's phase three Apollo B trial for Unpatro in this very same heart disease indication as well. Now, Mvutra has a great uh, monetary potential. Evaluate Vantage speculates that given uh, its potential for ATTR polyneuropathy and cardiomyopathy, the drug could reach $1.8 billion in global sales by 2026. Now, Alnilim is... Um, specializes in developing RNAi interference therapeutics. However, there are other big players in the ATTR cardiomyopathy space as well. So Pfizer is one of them, and it doesn't have just one, but it has two approved ATTR cardiomyopathy therapies, um, Vindical and Vindamax, which brought in $2 billion in sales last year. Other big names in the space include AstraZeneca and Novo Nordisk. Um, and so these two companies have striked partnerships and are buying um, ATTR therapeutic uh, drug programs from other companies as well to beef up and get into this space uh, with RNAi therapeutics to treat uh, for ATTR uh, cardiomyopathy or the hereditary, hereditary form as well. Now, Alnilum, actually, when I was uh, covering the story, I'm like, hmm, this company seems very familiar, not because it's doing great work in the RNAi space, but also um, because it actually took Pfizer and Moderna to court recently. Um, and I think I did talk about this story on the podcast, but Alnilum has filed lawsuits against both companies over alleged patent infringements. So the company claims that it holds the patent for the lipid nanoparticle technology that Pfizer and Moderna used in their COVID-19 vaccines. However, of course, Pfizer and Moderna deny this and we'll see how things pan out in court. So I just wanted to get your thoughts on this new FDA approval for an RNA therapeutic. We've heard a lot about RNA over the past two years. Thanks or no thanks to COVID-19, um, the vaccines in particular. So I just wanted to get your thoughts on this. Well, yeah, I found it interesting how um, Alnilim, like the company, they already had one FDA approved product for this indication, mm -hmm. but then they went and they managed to like improve yeah. the drug, right? So not only does it need to be administered less frequently, but in the Helios A clinical trial, it also had a better improvement. Yeah. So the newer RNAi drug had a huge, a better new gen version. Yeah. Yeah. So I found that interesting how, um, you know, when pharma companies take an existing drug and then they manage to, uh, you know, achieve better outcomes with a newer, similar drug. Yeah, that's a great point. And I think it's fantastic because, you know, companies can be like, well, this drug, you know, 
The other thing is, I'm not sure how profitable uh, Patro really was as well. I think there were some, uh, I was reading about some things about how, you know, Alan Lim wasn't quite happy with, um, I guess, the profitability as well. So that aspect as well. And then also companies are always trying to improve, right, their drugs, because there's so much competition out there. I mean, you have, uh, you know, people like, or big wigs like Pfizer and, you know, AstraZeneca coming into the space. And, and so I think um, this kind of market competition is healthy in terms of it not, it, it brings better and newer therapies to patients in the end. So I think um, new and improved therapies to patients. And I think, so that kind of competition just financially, you know, we think about outdoor companies are just in for the financials, but it really does help with the, you know, to, um, bring better and improved therapies at the end of the day. So it's, it's really great that, um, companies are striving to always, um, better their, their existing therapeutics and come out with new ones. And in this case, I guess they saw a gap and they saw some, issues with on Patro in terms of efficacy and then also the stability and profitability as well. So taking all of that into consideration, they probably thought it was a good idea to invest in a new, uh, in developing a new drug. Um, considering that this is for a rare genetic disorder, is there any idea about what would be the list priced for Amvutra? Yeah, I think, um, I came across this. It's going to be quite expensive. It's almost half a million dollars. So I think $463,500 is what the list price is set at. Is this and an annual? On an, yes, on a yearly an annual, basis? Yeah, okay. an annual list price. And, um, you know, as we've discussed before with a lot of uh, gene therapies and um, biologics, especially in general, are a lot more expensive than your average pharmaceutical. And that's because of high R&D costs and also being for a rare indication. And so that's why, you know, there are definitely going to be government uh, assistant programs and, um, you know, advocacy groups also pushing to, to, to help out, to help the financing of this drug for patients. All right, that is the end of this episode of the X Talks Life Science Podcast. If you liked today's show, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Thanks, everyone, and see you next week. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to the X Talks Life Science Podcast. If you enjoyed our discussions today, please share the episode with your friends and colleagues, and be sure to subscribe in order to be notified when a new episode is released. To join in on the discussion, you can find X Talks on social media. Email podcast at xtalks.com or comment on the articles directly. Links are in the show description. Take a moment to join our community at xtalks.com to get access to everything we have to offer, including webinars, job listings, virtual meetings, articles, and more. The views and opinions expressed in the podcast are those of the speakers sharing them. They should not be taken as professional advice and do not necessarily reflect the policy or position Honeycomb Worldwide. For further information, email us at podcast at xtalks.com. Thanks for joining us and we'll see you next week.